Welcome to episode three. In this episode, Routhog tells John he will not finish the story about Randall Wolf, but instead tells a ridiculous story about his uncle Fotis and Emily, who is a kicking mule. During this story, you'll meet John Spellman. Well, I'm not sure where we are at this point. I, I, I think I might could be a little lost. John's friend, Council Register. I have to take a squirt, so I'm about to step into darkness. And his trail buddy, Route Hog. Uncle Foda said a mule named Emily used to love kicking people in the keister. Almost as if he were teasing me. Routhog had stopped his story again and asked me, did I really want to hear this whole complicated story about Mary Rose and was she going to go into that house or not? Listen, he said, are you sure you want to hear it? Oh, go on, I said, please, go on. Mary is nearly at the front door. I'm waiting. Oh, right, said Hog, okay. So she had just decided definitely to leave that house when her eye caught an unusual decoration above the door, an emblem like a wolf family crest carved into the wood. There was a figure of a rather wild-looking man labeled Homo Bulla, and beneath that was four words. Tilting her head, Mary could just read them. The four words said, Be bold, be bold. Oh, thought Mary. Well, I'm going to take that as a sign, and I will boldly knock on my man's door. As she carefully hid her load of flowers in the high shrubs at one side of the stairs, smoothed out her skirt, climbed up to the veranda, and walked to the threshold. And there she stopped. She took a deep breath, and she wrapped her knuckles sharply on the large door. And then, after waiting a polite period of time and hearing no call or movement within, Mary knocked again. And then a third time, much louder, with her fist this time. Still no response from inside the house. She leaned to her left and looked through the long, full-length narrow window beside the door. She could see the polished floor of an entrance hall, a bit of a carpet in another room, and the base of an ornate staircase that rose up toward the second story. And peering further, she saw a large window set in the far wall of another room on the other side of the hall a window lined with heavy drapes and covered with translucent curtains through which shone the gilded light of late afternoon in the deep woods. Oh, it seemed a beautiful and carefully cared-for home. Even the oversized knob on the door at which she stood had been beautifully crafted of polished wood, gnarled and knuckled like a closed fist. Mary reached out and touched it, and turned it just to feel its weight in her hand. Silently, the large door to the entrance hall opened. Cool air from the interior of the house flowed across Mary's face, and she smelled 
the polish of fine wood and fresh-washed stone and inhaled a slight fragrance of cedar. Mary leaned up to the open door, and she called inside. Mr. Wolf! Fox! Foxman, it's me, Mary! I have come boldly to your door. Are you here? Are you here? She pushed the door open wider, and she put her head all the way inside. Foxy, are you home? It's me, Mary. Her eyes caught the glint of a polished granite table, the sparkle of golden thread in a carefully placed throw rug, the gleam of the polished oak wood stairs that went up to the second floor. Mary had never been in a two-story house before. She shut the outside door behind her, moved to the bottom of the stairs, and called out quite loudly, Mr. Wolf, it is I, Mary, I am here. I love your house, and I'm now going upstairs in your lovely house. Is that all right? Still no answer, but Mary could sense his presence strongly. Mr. Wolf must be here, and, and then concealing himself to tantalize her. She would not, she decided, allow herself to be teased. She would instead, instead tease him by exploring his house until he decided to reveal himself to her. Mary went up the stairs a little breathless at her own daring in this flirting game and a little nervous that she might actually be trespassing and thrilled thrilled by the touch of danger and, and by thoughts of being Mrs. Wolf and coming back down those stairs in grand dresses for grand parties in a house filled with friends from around the world. She reached the second floor. There she could see only a single long hall which seemed to run the whole length of the building. Six doors were all on one side of the corridor and the other side was entirely taken up with large, high windows which looked out over a grassy garden that stretched down a hill into the trees and on a large, round pond glinting in the setting sun. And at the end of that hall was a seventh door, larger than the others, and there was carving in the wood above it. Mary went most of the way down the hall before she could see clearly the figure of Homo Bola this time with one hand raised, palm forward, in warning, and more words. Be bold, be bold, but not too bold. Oh, thought Mary, what has he got in here? Foxy, it's me, bold Mary. What are you doing behind that door? You must be here. Why are all the doors so carefully closed? Fox, I'm going to boldly come through this door. Are you ready? She turned the knob, the thought barely registering that the knob was in the shape of a hairless human head, its wide open mouth and bulging eyes facing up toward the ceiling. The door swung open and Mary looked into a large room that covered the whole width of the house 
windows on three sides, late afternoon light coming in under and around the heavy drapes that covered the glass, a huge four-poster bed, a long, high, polished stone table with several sharpened metal tools on top, two chests of large drawers nearly five feet tall, one with a hairbrush and a jar of hair grease on it, and a high black boot set carefully against the wall. Oh, no, thought Mary, no, this is Foxy's bedroom. I, I, I should not be here, not yet, not yet. But as she turned to leave, over in the corner of this room, she saw another heavy door, and above it stood Homo Bulla, this time with both arms stretched in prohibition and more words carved into the wood. Be bold, be bold, but not too bold, lest that thy heart's blood should run cold. Well, Mary could not resist. She had to see what was behind that door, and she pulled it open. It was a large walk-in closet lined with cedar, and there was nothing in it except three large cedarwood barrels, each with a lid. Oh, what is it you want me to see, she said aloud. Still sure he must be somewhere very close. I'm going to look in this barrel, she said. She lifted the lid. And at this point, said Routhawk to me, Council stopped his story. He sniffed and wiped his nose with a kerchief he bought out of the top pocket of his overalls and said, I have to take a squirt. I'll be back in a minute. And Council stepped into the darkness beyond the fire and vanished. I could no longer see him, John, or, or, or hear him even. I listened for the sound of him relieving himself in the bushes, but I heard nothing. Perhaps he'd moved too far off, nervous, perhaps, made more so by his story. I stared into the dark, waiting for his return, and I almost heard again the eerie lullaby of music. Music, or, or was it moaning women, coming from the direction of the ruined building? And in my mind, snowman, I sensed again the soft flutter of the wings of the white bird of death. And then I was sure I actually did hear the bird again, louder than before, this time more in front of me in the direction in which counsel had disappeared. And that sound grew louder, louder, until something lurched suddenly out of the darkness in front of me. It was counsel crouched low and flapping his elbows like bird's wings and making a fluttering sound between his lips. I'm a wild turkey, counsel said, coming towards you this time. <laughs> hey, Hawk, let's get some wood on that fire and see if we can get it going again. And he started picking up pieces of small wood that lay around our campsite, and I got up and helped him make a pile by the fire pit. And, said Roundhog to me, you know, John, that's what we ought to do, too. If you're going to stay here tonight, we'd need us a good fire. So Hog and I started gathering wood, and Hog began talking again. 
you know, John, you know, all my family's from up here in these hills, you know, and, and we were always gathering wood. My uncle, well, he's my mother's uncle, actually, but they were about the same age because my granddaddy's sister was much younger than he was. My uncle, his name is Fotis, Uncle Fotis, we call him. He had a mule he used to take out into the woods when he was gathering firewood. And Fotis had rigged that mule with a wooden pallet up on its back. And he would pile firewood up on that pallet about as high as he dared tie it, which sometimes wasn't really that high because that mule, Bean was its name. I think Bean. No, maybe it was Bess. No, it was Bean. This mule, Bean, like rhymes with green, spelled with two E's, Bean didn't like too much weight on his back. And if, in fact, he decided that you had put too much weight on him, he would buck up and shake all that wood off, and then Uncle Fotis would have to pick it all up and pile most of it up on him again and hope Bean wouldn't jump around and shuck it all off again. And, Hog said, Fotis told me, he says a lot more than one time, Fotis said, you had to be careful around that mule that if you bent over to pick up wood, you had to be real careful about how you bent over and where you bent over because, he said, if your backside was angled in such a way that Bean could kick his rear feet at your rear end, he would do that. And he could deliver a great good wallop to your posterior, I mean enough to knock you down and sometimes roll you right over, heels over head. Bean... Fotis told me, Bean, he'd never kick you if you were standing up, but if you were bent over and he could see that he had a good shot at a good target, I mean, there was hardly any way he could resist kicking you, particularly if he was already peed off at you for piling wood up on him. So, once time, John, once I was helping Uncle Fotis and Bean to collect firewood. A cold front was coming in, and we were hurrying because we were up on the ridge behind Fotis's place, and the wind was picking up pretty hard. And we were nearly done when Bean decided we'd put too much weight on his back, and he bucked off the entire load. The entire load. I had to hustle down the ridge to pick up some of the wood. And I'm walking back up the slope with my arms nearly full of sticks and branches and wood when I noticed and I could see only the top of Fotis's head and the small of his back. That is to say, Fotis was bent over downhill with his head toward me, picking up a bunch of little kindling pieces, with the result that behind Fotis I could see old Bean's big rear end. And then I seen that Bean's rear thighs was a-twitching, and it looked like Bean was... Oh, you know what, John? I don't think that mule was named Bean. Or Bess. Uh-uh. I, I think that mule was a mule that Fotis had before he had Bean or Bess. And this mule's name was... Wait a minute. I think its, I think its name was Amelia. That's right, Amelia. Because Fotis was not married at that time, but he later did marry a woman... Amelia, that had the same name as one of his mules. 
Yeah, that's right. He was not married at this time because his first wife had died. Well, that's what they told us kids. I was I was a kid at the time of Foda's first wife. They told us that she had died. But I heard later that she had run off, just run off with a German fella that had come in to do some of the engineering on the railway line that was coming through here then. So there was Fotis, all bent over and pointed the wrong way, and that mean old mule Amelia was a twitch in her kicking muscles, and it was quite clear to me that Oh, oh, I know what you're thinking, John. You're thinking, what railway line? There was no railroad through here. None at all. And, and you're right, there never was no railway. Good thinking, John. Because they planned one, they engineered it, they brought in Germans to lay it out, and even a few crews to start building it, but it never went through there. It went in on the other side of the river. Well, actually at that point, it wasn't the other side of the river, it was all on one side because they later rechanneled that section of the river so that it now flows under that trestle between Stone Ridge and Slater's Folly. But there used to be not any water there at all. No water, just land. And that land, now underwater, got the name Sunken Acres. Oh, and you know the ridge where me and Fotis were picking up the wood that Amelia had kicked off? That ridge never had no name at all that I ever knew. Everybody just called it the ridge behind Fotis' place. So, there I was, just coming up the ridge behind Fotis's place, when I saw, at a glance, the entire situation. Fotis bent over, pointed the wrong way, not noticing in his frustration and his hurry that his rear end was directed toward Amelia. So what did I do? Well, naturally, I took action, John. I called out to Fotis. Hey, Fotis, Amelia is about to... No, that's not right. You know that mule, that mule couldn't, couldn't have had exactly the same name as Fotis's wife, uh, his second wife, I mean. That just can't be. No, no, no. I think that mule's name was actually Emily, not Amelia. That's right, that's right. It was Emily. And Emily is a name that sounds a lot like Amelia. And that's what made it seem so funny when Fotis married Amelia. Even, oh, I think maybe Emily was actually dead by that time. Although maybe not because Emily did live a long time. You ever notice, John, how long a mean mule will live? But come to think of it, you know, maybe Amelia or Emily wasn't mean. Or maybe that mule was just a good kicker, and that's why she did it. She's good at it, so she did it. So, there I was, John, just a boy, coming up the ridge behind Fotis' place with all that wood in my arms, when suddenly I perceived the relative positions of the back porches, back porches, <laughs> the back portions of Uncle Fotis and Emily and instantly ascertained what was about to happen. 
Fotis, I said, Fotis, you got to be careful. Emily is about, oh no, that, that is not right. Uh -uh. I would never have said to Fotis, be careful. Because I was old enough by then. I mean, my God, I was 14, maybe 15. No, I would have been 16. 16, old enough to have learned it with a person like Fotis, you do not say be careful because one of the reasons Fotis is always in the kinds of situations he's always in is that he doesn't know the meaning of being careful. <laughs> Just like counsel, huh, John? Yeah, Fotis was careless. Fotis was an extremely careless man. He still is. He's still careless. He's up in his 80s now, but just last month, my cousin Bertie told me this, the last time I saw him, the last time I saw Bertie, I mean, just the last month, Fotis, he said, had climbed up on a ladder in his garage. Now I'm talking Fotis' garage, not Bertie's garage, because Bertie doesn't have a garage. I don't think Bertie even owns a car. Fotis was in his garage, trying to get something from the storage area up above there. He's a pack rat, you know. He was up on the very top of an eight-foot wooden folding ladder and smoking. That man has never stopped smoking. One of his big old cigars, and all of a sudden, that, that folding ladder came out from under him and dropped photos directly over a full open barrel of kerosene in such a way that that cigar came out of Fotis's mouth and the fiery hot tip of it. Whoa, look here. All right, all right. We have gathered enough wood. That's good, John. Plenty. Good. Let's stop. Light up our fire and I can get back to that story council told me about Mary Rose. Where were we? Well, I'm not sure. I said, I, 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 I think, I think I, uh, I might could be a little lost at this point. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember, said Roundhog. Mary Rose was in Mr. Wolf's house in his bedroom, his closet, with the barrels, the three barrels in the closet, and the words above the closet door, be not too bold, lest that thy heart's blood should run cold. So bold Mary had stepped in and lifted the lid on that first barrel, and it was filled, near to overflow, with a thick red liquid. <laughs> 